But if you're ready to, to get into where we are at um, in our series here, the story as we are moving from Genesis to Revelation, uh, it's taking a little while, but not too long. If you can get to Genesis, Genesis to Revelation in 32 weeks um, in a sermon series, you're doing all right. Uh, we are in a place where we're going to be jumping into Jeremiah's life. We're ending at the end of Second Kings here. And so I just hope you can follow along. But um, before we kind of jump into the text here, I, I do have a question for you. Like, what is your vision for your life? What is the vision that God has given you for your life? And how, how is it going? I mean, has everything turned out as you expected it? Uh, maybe at some point in your life you've even had an experience where you're in prayer and you just feel like God has been present in your life and he's moving you forward and you know that he's going to be with you and he's never going to leave you nor forsake you. But how are you doing with that? How are you doing with your dreams? Is your vision going better or worse than you thought it would? Uh, I mean, do you have your dream job, your dream car, your dream family? Your dream house. Uh, what about your dream spouse? Anybody have their dream spouse? All right, if you're married, raise your hand right now. Especially if your spouse isn't here. Look at your spouse and just tell them you're my dream spouse. Uh, leave out the details if they're a nightmare. All right. Well, I, I, I want us to look at real quick. I want to look at. Jeremiah's call and his vision that God gave him. And so if you have your Bibles or your notes there, go ahead and open to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet of God. In other words, uh, God speaks through this man. And here is Jeremiah's call and vision for his life. Chapter 1, verse 4, Jeremiah, the Lord gave me this message. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. One of the things that we learn here as God is speaking to Jeremiah is that he was intentionally created. Is that Jeremiah is not a mistake. God had planned Jeremiah and as he is in his mother's womb, what we see here is God making the statement that he is the one at work forming him. David had a very similar vision of this when he's writing the psalm in Psalm 139. He says, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. And some of you are knitters. Some of you might be crocheters and have worked uh, with clothes. Or and you know how intricate that is. And you know how special that is and how you are working diligently to craft something that you are making. And so this is one of the reasons that we as Christians believe that life is important from conception. Because God is at work creating human life and no one is a mistake. Right? There might be accidental parents, but there are not accidental children. And so God here is telling Jeremiah, I am at work creating. I was at work creating your life. And so you were intentional. You were not a mistake. And then he continues here and he says, before you were born, I set you apart and I appointed you. So we have God intentionally creating Jeremiah. And then we have God telling Jeremiah that I have created you for a purpose. Here's the idea. He says, I have set you apart. I have appointed you in the ESV. I neglected to use the ESV this morning, but the ESV says, I have consecrated you. And what that means is that God has set Jeremiah apart for a holy purpose. That Jeremiah has a God-given purpose in his life. And the truth is, so do all of you. 
He continues here as he speaks into Jeremiah. He says, I've appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. The appointment that God has given Jeremiah is to be a prophet and not just to be a prophet. This is a special calling from God, by the way, to speak on God's behalf for Jeremiah. But he's given him a platform. So he's created him intentionally. He's given him a purpose. And now God says, I'm going to give you a platform. Now, the platform is to to speak to the nations. This is a pretty big platform, right? If you are going to be a prophet and if you are going to be speaking and teaching people. And so this is a very large vision that Jeremiah is given. And so how does Jeremiah respond here? He says, oh, sovereign Lord, I said, I can speak. I can't speak for you. I'm too young. At this time, Jeremiah is about 18 And so, as most 18-year-olds would probably do, if they're humble enough to do it, is to realize that they are not equipped to speak to the nations. Jeremiah is from a small town northeast of Jerusalem, and so he didn't even grow up in the capital, and yet God is telling him that you're going to speak to kings, queens, rulers, that you're going to have their ears. God, I'm only 18. One of the things that we need to be reminded about, and as we work through the Bible together, that age doesn't really matter to God. God doesn't care how old you are or how young you are. I mean, remember Abraham? God shows up to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of nations. In other words, Abraham, I'm I'm going to give you children. You're going to father children. You and your wife, Sarah. Sarah and Abraham were quite old, by the way. Uh, they were past childbearing age, and God said, that doesn't matter. I can open her womb. I can give you a child. Or what about David? David's a young man. He can't beat Goliath. He's just the boy. Goliath is a man who has been fighting for years, and yet David steps up and he defeats Goliath. Not only does David step up and defeat Goliath, but he becomes a commander of armies as a young man. Age does not matter to God here. God continues, the Lord, the Lord replied, don't say I'm too young. For you must go wherever I send you and wherever I tell you. Don't be afraid of the people, for I will be with you and I will protect you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, we don't really know how Jeremiah responds vocally to God here. We just know that Jeremiah receives a call. Because basically, Jeremiah's story, it just continues and he continues to hear from God. And he continues to speak on God's behalf. And when you read about Jeremiah, what you discover is that God makes good on his promise here. That at a relatively young age, Jeremiah has the, has the years of kings. Josiah happens to be one of the good kings in Judah, and he rediscovers the scriptures. And what Josiah wants to happen is he wants his people to hear the scriptures and for the scriptures to be taught because Manasseh and others have sidetracked the kingdom of Judah. And so one of the people that Josiah brings into his kingdom to speak to the people, to bring them back to God, is Jeremiah. And so before Jeremiah even realizes that he is, this is coming through and he is speaking to Judah. And what is happening at this time is kind of a mini revival, or so Jeremiah thought, and so Josiah thought. But after Josiah dies, the people turn. The people forget everything that Jeremiah has told them. The people's hearts and their minds 
their commitment to the God that Jeremiah was talking about uh, quickly receded and turned away. One of the things that we can learn from this as Josiah died, the people turned is, you know, our faith is most sincere when it is not anchored rather in a leader, but rather in God himself. We've got to be careful about coming becoming attached to the voice or to the leader or to the king and rather make sure that our faith is anchored in God. And so what happens is corruption takes place as Jeremiah continues to preach and teach to Judah. You would think as all of this is happening Jeremiah would have had these big dreams, these big visions. He was called by God. God told him he was created intentionally. He had this purpose. He had this platform. And so you would think like his ministry and his life would be great, wouldn't you? I mean, if you were writing Jeremiah's story and you just had the front end, how would it turn out? Millions of people coming to follow God and follow after Jeremiah and respecting him. When he's being called to do revivals, right, you would think that, that people would, you know, the way we think of revival, we think of people coming forward to receive God and follow God. So you would think of all of these sorts of things happening. But this is not what happens in Jeremiah's life. Jeremiah's life takes a very different turn. Not only with Josiah's death do the people that he spoke to and seemed to have placed their faith in God turn, but as Jeremiah continues to do ministry and, con- and continues to move, Uh, In ministry, he finds a lot of rejection. He doesn't find a lot of success in the way that we think of success. His life seems to be a pretty big letdown. When he preaches in his hometown, he is utterly rejected by the people that he grew up with. At one point, he walks in and he's preaching and he's telling people like, hey, if if you don't turn around, what's going to happen is the Babylonians, they're going to come in. And they are going to take our kingdom. It's going to belong to him. Uh, Do you know what they did to Jeremiah when he told them that? They threw him in a a cistern. Now, um, a cistern could just be a place that holds water. Uh, We do know from the scriptures that the cistern was muddy. And it didn't have any water in it. So when he would throw in it, he would be thrown in it. It would sink. Um, But some commentators will point out. Um, and some of you just know what a cistern can, can contain. It's a big poop hole is what it is. And so what they do is they threw Jeremiah in a big hole that's surrounded by rock that was likely full of feces. And he is sitting in there sinking day by day, waiting to die until somebody finally convinces the king uh, to allow them to lift him out of that. The people that Jeremiah preached to, they don't turn back to God. What happens is the Babylonians do move in and the very place in which Jeremiah lives and does ministry is taken over by the Babylonians. At the end of Jeremiah's life, he desperately wants to remain in Jerusalem. And yet he is taken by his friends and those remaining to Jerusalem to Egypt where he dies. He dies in a place in which he didn't want to. Now, why am I telling you this? Why am I telling you that Jeremiah lived a tough life? 
Why am I telling you that Jeremiah is known by some as the weeping prophet? There's a book in the Bible called Lamentations. It's five chapters of basically Jeremiah just weeping over his life, over his call, over the people not listening to him, over his nation. Why am I telling you all of this? That he spent 40 years at this. Because one of the reasons, or one of the things that I want you to see about Jeremiah is not just the difficult situations that he went to, went through, but rather that he persevered through it all. Jeremiah never gives up. And so some of you have heard Jeremiah as the weeping prophet, but here's how I would like you to think of Jeremiah, as a persevering prophet. He could have given up. You could give up. I I don't know what you're going through or what you're weeping over, but it, it is easy to give up when things get tough and the vision for your life doesn't exactly go as planned. Uh, You know, maybe your career is not headed in the direction in which you wanted it to go. Maybe your family is not where you hoped it would be. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your husband. Maybe it's your wife. Maybe there's a death. Maybe you're lonelier than what you hoped to be. Maybe there's regret in your life. One of the things that I want you to see, though, if you're going through that right now, if you're in a season of weeping because the vision that you had for your life is not turning out in the way that you hoped it would be, is one of the things that Jeremiah teaches us is it's not necessarily due to lack of favor from God. It's not because you are maybe even off track. But sometimes our lives are tough even when we are on track and we are following God. The question for all of us really is just, are we going to persevere? Are you going to keep going? There's another story running parallel to Jeremiah's life. Jeremiah is an individual going through all of this and persevering and struggling. Well, the story that's kind of running parallel with Jeremiah's life is that of a nation. There's Judah. And this is the nation that Jeremiah is speaking to. And just like Jeremiah, Judah is given a vision and call for its country. In Genesis 12, Abraham is told that this nation is going to be a blessing and it's going to bless other people. And God is going to continue to bless this nation as long as they do this. In Exodus 19 and 20, God shows up to this nation And he says, you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are my sons and my daughters. You are special. And then God gives them the Ten Commandments. And God says, follow this. And basically, you will be blessed. You will be taken care of. They're given another vision. David, the king of Israel, the Judean, is told by God. In 2 Samuel 7, he says, David, your throne is going to last forever. One of your descendants is going to rule forever and there will be no there'll be no end to your nation. So this nation too has a vision, it has a plan. It's got purpose. God has set it aside for his purposes. 
But somewhere along the way, they had forgotten God. I don't know. Well, I do know, right? They've grown proud. They've said they don't need God. And I, I don't know if they've gotten to the point where they just believe in their hearts that they're kind of untouchable because God had given them these promises. That, that God was just going to continue no matter what and let them to do whatever they wanted to do, no matter where their hearts were at, no matter where their lives were at, no matter where their kingdom was headed. And yet I do believe that they probably forgot one of the conditions in which God told David about his sons continuing on. God did say, yes, the son of yours is going to rule forever, but he will be to me like a son and I will discipline him if he doesn't follow me. And so what we happen in what we see happening in the book of Kings is unlike Jeremiah, the kingdom is punished. And they find themselves in trouble. They find that their actions are causing trouble for other people because of their disobedience here. What God does is he moves the Babylonians into Judah about 500 B.C. after they had been a country on their own for about 300 years and had spent most of that time rejecting God. And they had the Babylonians come in and they basically exile. In other words, they take the business leaders away. They take um, the wealthiest people away and they basically spread them out all across the world and they leave the laborers uh, to tend to tend the ground and the crops and so forth and kind of to keep that area going to serve the Babylonian kings. This is a low point in the history of Israel and Judah itself. Sometimes we too right, do hit low points in our lives because of disobedience. Sometimes we have had people sent to us like Jeremiah and they've just said, hey, this is this is a bad idea. You know, God has told you that this is not a, a good thing to continue to do. And yet we sometimes refuse to listen. And sometimes God allows the circumstances basically to take place in our lives that cause hurt and they cause pain and they cause trouble. So what do you do if that's you? Right? There are two different people here. There's Jeremiah and then there's the country of Judah. What do you do if that's you? The decisions that you have made, that you've been warned, you know they were wrong, uh, you know what would happen and yet you're suffering the consequences. Do you just give up hope? Do you just kind of turn your back on God? Because at that point in time, sometimes I think we feel like God has turned his back on us. But what we learn is this is never the case with God. The book of Kings ends kind of with this story with Judah being exiled and taken away and punished. And what we have are all these kings of Judah are all sons of David. All the sons of David. David, remember, was told that his throne would last forever, that he would have a son that would live on the throne. Well, at the end of the book of Kings, what you have is you have David's sons basically being put in jail and left there to rot without children. Uh, And so the country is without hope and they wonder, is God really going to keep his promise? And here's how the book of Kings ends. Follow me here. This is the last two verses of the book of Kings. It says, he supplied Jehoiachin. This is the king of Judah here. This is a son of David with new clothes to replace his prison garb and allow him to dine in the king's presence. 
for the rest of his life. So the king gave him regular food for allowance as long as he lived. The book of Kings ends with these last two words, he lived. Now this is extremely interesting that God would end 2 Kings with he lived. Because of the history that I just shared with you here. That they were without hope. But this idea that Jehoiachin lives is basically telling the people who have been exiled and have walked away from God and are basically experiencing the consequences of the things that he has done is that a Savior is on the way. Is that God has not given up on them despite their own choices. Despite turning their backs on God, that God has not turned their backs on them. He lived. This is hope. This is Jehoiachin for us eventually leading to Jesus. If you were to open up your Gospels and you begin to read through the genealogies that get to Jesus, what you're going to discover is that Jehoiachin is a grandfather of Jesus. Without Jehoiachin, you get no Jesus. But because Jehoiachin lived, Jesus lives. Do you get that? Do you see where the Bible is going and where Scripture is going here? He lives. Some of us just need to remind us of this, be reminded of this on a daily basis, because this is our hope. This is this is what we anchor ourselves in as Christians, is this idea that he lives. I can only imagine the women hopeless, their lives not going the way they thought it would go as they followed Jesus throughout his life, placing all their hope, all their trust in him and continuing to go to the tomb day after day before Jesus rose from the dead and going there and going to an empty tomb and seeing that he lives. And then running back and telling the apostles that he lives. Peter, a person who had denied Jesus three times. Peter is Jesus' best friend. And while Jesus is on the cross, he is such a coward that when a teenage girl walks up to him and asks, Didn't you, weren't you a follower of Jesus? He does three different times. Denies Jesus, turns his back on Jesus. You can only imagine the hope that is put into his heart and into his mind as he recognizes he lives. Jesus lives when he sees the resurrected Savior. You see, our hope as Christians and our lives as Christians are, is always rooted in this idea that he lives, that he is alive. Peter put it like this in his first letter. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so I don't know where you're at this morning and um, where your vision and your dream for your life is at. And maybe you think that it has been destroyed because of the decisions that you have made. But God can always redeem that. God can always forgive according to his great mercy. Right. You can be forgiven. And so in other words, like you can walk out of your guilt and shame and your past life and you can look towards Jesus. Because Jesus lives, we can get busy living and forget the past and move on. Because He lives. Church this morning, if you're taking notes, I just want to write, write this down. Because if you're going to persevere, you have to believe this, is that you have reason to hope. This is, this is our life. This is what motivates us through life. Recently, um, I was listening to the radio or whatever, and they said this study had come out. I couldn't find this study, but 
Um, and so, right, this isn't, this isn't gospel truth here, but they were talking about how people who attend Christian services live up to 50, 50% longer. Um, I, I looked for that study. I couldn't find that study, but I could find a study that showed that women who attend 50 or, uh, churches uh, att- actually live 13 to 30%, 33% longer than people who don't. They listed a number of reasons why Christian women might live longer than those who don't, like because they don't necessarily have the same lifestyles as other people do. In other words, they drink less, they smoke less, um, they drive less crazy. I don't know if that's actually true. Um, uh, but, uh, but, but here's the thing that I believe, and they, they, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't think about this, but ra- rather the, the psychological health uh, that Christians have because we have hope, right? We have hope even in the midst... A difficulty. You need hope to live. You take away hope from people, and I promise they will stop living. Right? Uh, their lives will, will not move in the direction that it needs to move, nor with the balance that it needs to continue on. One of the things I want to point out to you here, though, with Jehoiachin, is Jehoiachin is brought out of prison about 500 years before Jesus dies, or lives, or is born. So this is about, you've got about 500 years between Jehoiachin and Jesus. And so there's some stuff going on here in 500 years. We don't always see this in the Bible. We, always, we sometimes forget about the time lapses in the Bible and what people are going through and what people are waiting for here. And so when we think about our, our, our division for our lives and the plan for our lives and God walking us through all of this, one of the things that you just need to know is that God isn't on your timeline. God may have given you a vision. God gives you hope. But God, he's just not, he's not on your timeline. But here's one of the things that we can trust in. If, if God has promised it, if God is going, says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. You know, you think of Abraham. Abraham, he's given a vision, a, a nation. He's going to give birth to a nation. Abraham lives long, long enough to see the birth of his son. It's hardly a nation. And yet Abraham continues to move forward and continues to have faith in God. Moses. Moses is called to lead the people out of the promised land or out of Egypt into the promised land. Moses certainly leads the people out of Egypt, but he never gets to set foot in the promised land. He's just able to see it. David. David is promised... (laughs) He's promised that a temple is going to be built. This is something that David desperately wants to do because he wants to be in a place where he can experience the presence of God. And here's what God tells David. David, I love your vision. I love this idea and it's going to happen. But you know who's going to do it? Your son. You know who's going to get to experience the temple of God? Your son. And what's even cooler, as we look forward here is not only is his son Solomon going to be the temple of God, but his son Jesus is actually going to be the presence of God. It's not on God's timeline. And so some of us, we just have to be patient as we move forward in hope. Now, what is hope? What is Christian hope? We define it um, kind of as, as a culture, like there's some uncertainty. Right. And hope it's uh, um, it's something that you would like to happen, but are unsure if it's going to happen. So like you, you kind of maybe hope you're going to get a raise at your job. Uh, we hope the Cavs are going to win the next three games. Right? You might hope the Browns will win a game 
this year, right? or find a quarterback, or whatever. But Christian hope is it's, it's much different than that. Rather, it's, it's cloaked in certainty. We, we believe that it's going to happen, and that it will happen. Peter puts it like this. He says, so prepare, prepare your minds for action. Get ready to do something, he says, and exercise self-control. Put your hope in the grace, gracious salvation that might come, that could come, that may come. What's he say? He says, that, that will come. Right? He, he, he says, put your hope in something that will come. And this will come is Jesus Christ being revealed to the world. In other words, Christian hope isn't cloaked in uncertainty, but rather it hope happens here. Christian hope happens that it will take place. Jesus Christ will be revealed. Jesus Christ will come. John Piper put it like this, and this is in your notes. He says, hope is faith in the future tense. Hope is faith in the future tense. Peter says here that, Hope is connected to the revelation of Christ. And so how do we know now the revelation of Christ? How do we receive it now? How are our lives filled with hope? Even when we can't physically see Jesus. Well, in Romans 10:13, we were told by Paul, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The revelation of Christ is the word of God to us. And so if we're going to keep on hoping, if we're going to keep on persevering, if we're going to be reminded that Jesus Christ is coming and if He's going to reveal Himself to us, we must receive the Word of God in our lives. This is what kept Jeremiah going. And this is the fuel for his perseverance. If we're going to persevere, even when things get tough, even when life is not going as planned, this is one of the things that Jeremiah does with the country of Judah. Judah is in exile. It's in a place where it doesn't want to live serving leaders that it doesn't want to serve. And Jeremiah goes to the people of God with the word of God. And this is what he says to them. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope here. What's Jeremiah gives the people? When things aren't going their way, he gives them the word to trust in God, that they do have a future. Uh, some of you enjoy history. You know I do. Abraham Lincoln obviously was prob- probably went through uh, the most difficult time um, our country has ever experienced uh, as it split in his presidency. And he is trying to hold the nation Together, And so we go into civil war and not only do we go into civil war, but he's got to appoint generals and uh, Lincoln's generals. If you read about it, they didn't really listen to him. Uh, He's president of the United States, but they had very little respect for, for him. And so they don't really follow his commands or do what he wants to do. And so he's got generals going behind his back. If you know anything about his family, uh, Mary Todd Lincoln um, wasn't really known uh, for um, her mental fortitude. And in fact, uh, she struggled emotionally on a regular basis. And so he didn't have a whole lot of emotional support uh, from his wife. And then something most tragic 
happened in his life about 1862. In 1862, on February 20th, his 11-year-old son, William Wallace Lincoln, died. The president, who was already struggling with depression and everything that was going on in his life, suffered the death of one of his sons. You are told as you read throughout the, the history of this time period uh, that Lincoln did no work absolutely at all for over a week. And there are um, instances where he would lock himself in his office all day and his staff could just hear him weeping. Up until this time, uh, if you read about Lincoln's um, faith in God, it's kind of like most politicians. Um, he used it when he needed it, um, but uh, didn't reference it a whole lot. But if you start to read his quotes after his son died, who, by the way, wanted to be a Christian minister, and had attended the Presbyterian Church with them every Sunday, uh, Lincoln began to talk in a different way. And here is one of his speeches uh, to the Society of Friends um, during uh, the period of 1964, before the war was ended and had ended and still going on. Lincoln says, The purposes of the Almighty are perfect and must prevail. Though we are erring mortals, we may fail accurately to perceive them in advance. We hope for a happy termination of this terrible war long before this, but God knows best and has ruled otherwise. We must work earnestly in the best light he gives us, trusting that so working still conduces the great ends he ordains. Surely he intends some great good to follow this mighty convulsion, which no mortal can make and no mortal could stay. What Lincoln begins to realize is that God's purposes are perfect, even in the midst of trouble. And what he says is that God determines the outcomes. And what he believes for himself and the country is to just do the right thing, is to follow God and allow God to determine the outcome and what will take place. This is Jeremiah. This is who Jeremiah was, and this is who, what Jeremiah did with his life. He believed that he was called to trust and to listen to God, and that God would work all things out for the good. Jeremiah, in about the middle of his life, he is told this by God. God tells him in Jeremiah 31, he says, The day is coming. The day is coming, Jeremiah, says the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah, this covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loved his wife, says the Lord. But this is a new covenant. I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You shall know the Lord. For everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already, says the Lord, and I will forgive them of their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. God tells Jeremiah that a day is coming. God tells Jeremiah to continue to hope, to continue to move forward, because a day is coming. And here's the thing, church. Your day is coming. 
I, I don't know when that is, but your day is coming. Just, just say it with me real quick. My day is coming. My day is, all right. My day is coming. All right. You almost believe that this morning. I can tell. Yeah, you really do. <laughs> now this promise is connected here to heart change. You see, Jeremiah is preaching to the people and their hearts are not being changed. Their minds are not being changed. They are not sincere. And what God says is that a day is coming when their hearts will be changed and their minds will be changed and their love for me will be sincere. He says, I'm going to change hearts. And he says, by the way, in the last verse there, he says, I'm going to forgive sins. I'm not going to remember their sins anymore. So how does he do that, church? Do you know? Right. Well, here's the thing. The day is here. Jeremiah tells God that the day is coming. But for us, we need to know that the day is here. We get to see what Jeremiah did and we get to know what Jeremiah didn't know. And yet sometimes we are just walking around this world without hope. And we get to see something that a man of God longed to see and kept him going. The day is here. The day is here where our sins will be forgiven and that we will love God with our hearts, our souls, our minds, and all of our strength. How does God make this happen? How does God get us to love Him and to follow Him sincerely? In Romans 8.32, we're told this. We're told that since He did not even spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, won't He give us everything else? God, in His great mercy for us, has provided His Son for the forgiveness of sins. What has God promised you? God has promised you life. God has promised to take care of you. What we're given through Jesus is the proof of that promise. God would not even spare His own Son to show you this. That he loves you. Like, I, I don't know about you, but when that sinks in, like when you think about how much God loves you, you can't not return love for God back. And he says he's going to give you everything. What God has done is he's already given up everything by watching his son die. His son Jesus gave up everything. He gave up his life by going to the cross to die for us. Do you believe that? Right. This, this knowledge from God should give us the hope to persevere. That the God who gave up His Son is going to give us everything else. Do you have that? Do you have His Son? Right. Do you have what it takes to persevere? Do you have what it takes to hope in the darkest situation? Do you have what it takes to keep going? Do you have the love of God in your life in this way and the faith that God is going to give you everything? I believe that this is what it takes to continue on. This is what it takes to, to live a joyful life. This is what it takes to move forward in a time of weeping. Is your hope firm, firmly, firmly rooted in Christ? I hope it is this morning. Let us pray. Father, we pray that according to your great mercy, 
and great plan to cause all of us to be born again into a living hope. I pray, Father, that you lift us all up out of hopelessness. Father, I pray that you give us a supernatural hope and the one who lives. That by your spirit, you empower us to love you the same way in which you have demonstrated love for us. As a father, you gave up your only son, Jesus. As God, the son, you gave up your life. Father, in the same way, I pray that we give our our lives to you. I pray right now, Father, that we give our hearts to you. Father, let us trust you with our dreams for our life and our visions for our life. Let us remember today that if they aren't working out um, on our timeline or the way that they would hope, that we had hoped, that you work out all things for the good of those who love you. So, Father, let us just let let that just be our prayer this morning. Might we love you? Might we give you thanks this morning? Might our faith grow this morning? Might we leave here more hopeful this morning? Might we persevere, Father, because your Son persevered for us on the cross and then rose again. And he lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.